I was literally just given this very short email, which was like, here's how we entered the US. Not sure if it'll be the same in Australia, but have a go. Hi, I'm Steve Duke, and this is the Two Roads Podcast. I started this podcast to try and help people find a job and build a life that they really love. And to do that, I have conversations with people from all different types of backgrounds to hear about what their job is actually like, and also to learn about their journey and how they think about making decisions. And hopefully that's helpful for you if you're going through a similar stage where you're trying to figure out what it is that you want to do. Today, however, I'm sitting in the interviewee seat. So I got my very good friend, Cameron Scott, to come on and play host. And he asks me the questions for a change. So if ever you're interested in learning about my background and my path and the different jobs that I've had over the years, this is a really good episode for you to listen to. So we talk about all my background, the different jobs that I've had, how I've made decisions at different points in my life, why I decided to move to Australia, the pros and cons of that, why I decided to completely refit a Jeep Wrangler and travel across all of Australia and live out of it for three months, what that was like, what I learned about myself, why I started the podcast, and what I've learned from doing the podcast. We really had a great conversation. Cameron's an excellent host. I actually might be out of a job if I'm not careful. And I hope that you really enjoy it. If this is the first episode that you're listening to, I'd implore you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes. A really great place to start is on episode seven, which is about how to design your life. So if you're trying to figure out what you want to do, but you're a bit lost, you don't know where to go. This is a great episode to start because it has a really solid structure and process for figuring out what you want to do and then how to make that a reality. Another great episode to listen to is the one with Philip Dorn. It was one he's one of my oldest and best friends and we talk all about his career and the different things that he has done and I just think it's a very enjoyable one to listen to. So go back give those a listen if this is the first episode that you've listened to of course you can always follow me on socials as well if you want more content to try and help figure out what you want to do on linkedin you can just follow my personal account at steve duke and then on instagram it's at two roads pod but apart from that let's get into the show and i hope you really enjoy it what's the first question you usually ask people i know it i just want to hear you say it so i always ask people when they were a kid what did they want to be when they grew up exactly so like uh what uh what's that for you so i wanted to be a rugby player for sure yeah or or a sports player in general like i was just obsessed with sports as a kid i just thought like i would go to these games like my dad would bring me to games and like the old lands End road and like we would stand behind this wall so that i could have a view like as a 10 year old i could get like just about i could stand on his feet and like see above the wall and I would, we would go there like an hour and a half before the games. And I would just like look at the players warming up and be like, this is the best thing in the world. This is all I want to do. Um, so yeah, th- that's what I wanted to be. As I grew up, I had other ideas. Like I wanted to be an architect for a little while. Um, that was a phase. I then wanted to be a doctor until I actually went and did work experience in a hospital for a week. How old were you then? 
I was like 15, maybe 15 or 16. And it was the best thing I ever did because I, I realized I don't like hospitals. I don't like sick, sick people. And uh, I think they're probably two pretty important things if you, if you want to be a doctor. And then what did you end up doing? Like you let, so this is like 16, you start thinking about it, you go like leave school. What did you end up doing after that? So I went into engineering um, in UCD in Dublin. So basically the first year you do like an omnibus course. So you study all the different types of engineering. And then after first year, you pick what you want to do. So I picked mechanical. Honestly, like looking back, I didn't think at all about the decision to do engineering or even why I did mechanical. I was just like, I like maths. I like physics. Engineering seemed like a respectable degree. I was like, yeah, I guess I kind of like Formula One racing. Just there was really no thought in it. And um, and that's what I went and, and what I did. And it was interesting, right? Because I think like years one and two in engineering, I did well because I liked maths, I liked physics and I was able to kind of get away with it. But what I found was in years three and four, I actually didn't do that well because I just wasn't into it. Like there was other people in my year who were actually like obsessed with engineering. Like this is what they did in their free time where I was just always doing it to like tick the boxes. I was just like, oh, I just want to do the exam, get out of here. It was always like a means to an end. And I think once you get to third or fourth year when stuff gets hard, like you needed more than that. So I, I didn't do so well in those years. Okay, so you, you, you started off, you wanted to be a doctor. You didn't become a doctor. You did, studied engineering. Like what's the journey been like from when you got, I guess, from that initial stage of I'm going to uni to where you are now? Like, what's the high level steps? And then we can like, we can dissect this. I had no idea what jobs there were out there. Like absolutely zero. So I was lucky enough that I was very good friends with and lived with a guy who's actually been on this podcast called Philip Dorn. And he was in a course economics and finance where all the guys were like super switched on to like what was actually going on and so through him and through that group i started to figure out like what other careers were out there i think i generally just wanted like a quote-unquote like cool job i wanted to wear a suit that was quite important to me because i was wearing i was watching a lot of suits at the time and like harvey specter micro you want to be harvey specter <laughs> 100 percent, i was like that's all i want like he's a cool guy I wanted a corner office. I wanted to wear a nice blue suit. And and that was and I wanted to make money, to be perfectly honest with you. And so I was looking at the kind of the finance track, uh, looked into trading. So I actually got an offer to go and be a trader. Um, and then I got an offer to join uh, McKinsey as well. And uh I picked I picked McKinsey. So Yeah, okay. And then like what like what was going through your decision process to like choose between all these things because obviously like those are two things you had offers for but you could have done any number of things i guess out of that point like what was going through your mind so i think mckinsey successfully groomed me basically for two years so by the time i got the offer it was an immediate yes um essentially when i was in second year of university through these same guys in like the economics and finance course, I heard about this program, which was, they call it the Discover program. Basically, it's like a few days for people in second year to go and learn about McKinsey. And I applied for that. I got in. And so they flew me over to somewhere in the UK for like a couple of days. And you do these workshops, you meet other people, you meet people who are working at McKinsey, you stay in this like nice place. And I was like, this 
this is amazing. This is, and do you know why? The reason was because I always had this like way of thinking, which was, I really liked logical thinking. I really liked, you know, log, very logical, structured problem solving, thinking about things in very analytical ways. And even though I was doing engineering, I didn't really like find that much of that around me. Like not many of the people that I was talking to were kind of thinking about things in that way. And then I went to this like few days with McKinsey and everybody was like this. This was how they spoke. This was how they talked. This was how they addressed problems. And they even taught me how to do it better. And I was like, yes, yes, this, this is it. Like this is, you know, this is where I want to spend my time. Like I was really jacked. Like when they were doing like these case studies and we've done enough case studies together, like I fucking love case studies. Like I love them. And, and so I was like, if this is the job, if I get to do these like case studies where it's all about like structured problem solving and analytical, analytical thinking, I'm in, I'm sold. So, so basically I was groomed to a point where once I got the offer, there wasn't really much decision-making or thinking going on. I was like, yep, I'm, I'm in, I'm done. Like, I also liked the idea that you got to taste a lot of different things, right? So it was kind of suspending decision-making for a couple of years. I had no idea what I really wanted to do. So management consulting was a good way to go and taste a lot of things and open up a lot of doors. Honestly, I didn't do a whole lot of thinking, Cameron. Like I just, it's easy to go back and like, rationalize or think about oh maybe i was thinking about this or that i just wasn't i was just like yeah cool job like look sexy i'll go and do that so then you're in this really cool job um what was it like so outside in perspective is always great but yeah how did you find it when you were actually there like what went on you obviously didn't stay so uh what happened how did you go from from that i'm buzzing for this to you know i might think about leaving this yeah, it's a great question. So overall, it was amazing. Like it was an extremely net positive experience like for my life. Um, on the positive side of things, you work with really smart people and that is such an undervalued thing. They're also really emotionally intelligent, which I didn't think necessarily would be true. I thought they'd be just these really like high IQ people. And your robots. Doing, doing Excel and PowerPoint. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, and I don't know if, the, if this has been your experience so far, but like working with emotionally intelligent people is so nice because they pick up when you're feeling a bit down, they pick up when you're feeling a bit frustrated and they have the intelligence to be able to like deal with that, you know, and help you through those like moments or when you're feeling a bit of pressure and come in and lend a hand to you when you need it, or maybe when you need to be pushed, they know when to push you. And like working with that, those kinds of people every day is just, just a dream, right? Like I just, I have such good memories of like sitting in a team room until like 11 PM at night, which objectively is shit, but having a great time. Cause it was like, it was really fun. Like we were having a laugh, we were working together in a, in a fun way. And, and like, that's, that was great. So so many great things about it. Like you learn so much. Oh my God. Like it's, it's ruthless the amount of feedback that you get at the start. I hated it because I was like not used to getting feedback. So I'd like argue with people. I was, I was too proud. I would... In what ways like they'd say like, uh, what, what sort of stuff would they do? So there's one story I have, which is, um, this is the, 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 
one of the biggest learnings I ever had. So I had an EM and she, that's an engage, she was my manager on this project. And basically she'd given me this thing to do. She was like, oh, you need to, um, you, you need to make sure that when this guy replies to this email, you know, that you take it off basically. And because we're all waiting on that. And I was like, okay, okay, fine. And she was like, when's it, is it done? Is it done? I was like, no, it's not done. And she was like, well, like it has to be done. Come on, find him, track him down, whatever else. And he was starting to hold up other things. And I went and tried to track him down. Couldn't do it, whatever. And I was like, right, okay, whatever. It's, I can't do it. Like whatever. It's, it's his fault. Then I found out that actually she had been emailed by him. And so it had been sitting in her inbox this whole time. And I was like, I found this out and I was like, Hey, this is your fault. Like this has been in, in, this has been sitting in your inbox the whole time. I've been running around trying to get it, but you're the one who should have checked your inbox. And she was like, no, Stephen, no, this was your responsibility to get done. If it was in my inbox, it's in my inbox, whatever, but it's your, it's, this is ultimately your responsibility. The book stops with you no matter what. And she, and I, and, and I argued with her over this and like, she like literally had to take me out and like go down to the cafeteria and like give me this piece of feedback, which was like, when you're responsible for something, you are 100% responsible for it. It doesn't matter. Like there's no excuses. It's never anybody else's fault. It just doesn't matter. And that was such, I argued with that. But then when I realized her point and that she was ultimately right, it's like such a great learning because you can kind of go, if you're given a job, you have to do it. There's no excuses. Okay, hold up one second. I'm sorry to have to interrupt this episode, but I do want to remind you that if you want more content on how to find a job and a life that you love, you can find it on our socials. So on Instagram, go to Two Road Pod, and on LinkedIn, just find my personal account called Steve Duke. And of course, these podcasts are released weekly where I interview people and that's extremely helpful for people to get inspiration and hear other people's stories and what how they did it and what they're going through. But I also release a ton of other content as well to help you both figure out what it is that you want to do and also how to then make that actually happen. So LinkedIn and Instagram and LinkedIn, Steve Duke, just my name. And then on Instagram, you can find us at two roads pod. Yeah. We have, we have such a similar thing where I am. And uh, we call that being at cause. And it's you, you have to take that ownership and be at cause for part of your team. We're actually scored on it in terms of our performance as well. And it's, it's can be, it can be quite a pressurizing environment as well. Like how did you, I mean, there's a lot of good things that have come, like you said, net positive for your, uh, for your life working at McKinsey. But then the downsides of it, like, like how was it working in that sort of like highly pressurized environment that, I guess from the outside in scene is quite competitive as well. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Um, it definitely was tough. Like I, I found it tough. Yeah. Um, because, because of this level of ownership that you have, um, realistically at like such a young age and, and then also just like, the hours that you're working as well. So you've got, you're in this stressful environment where you've got this huge amount of ownership. 
you're not really sure what you're doing because it's like your first job and you're like six months into it. And then you're trying to do that on like, you know, four hours of sleep a night. Uh, so it, it's it's kind of a cocktail for <laughs> um, for some for some stress. But but looking back on it, I would, I would say I don't think it ever got to a point where it was, you know, it was an issue for me. Uh, I think I was lucky in a couple of ways. One in that because I worked in the Dublin office, I would almost always come home on a Thursday evening. So how it would work is I would fly out on a Monday morning from Dublin. I would fly back in on a Thursday evening. And so on Fridays in the Dublin office, it would be a bit of a reprieve and it would help me ease into the weekend. And then I would have the weekend. I was playing rugby. I gave up rugby for like a couple of months and then I went back to it. So I had rugby, which was always a great way to get away from work. And so, um, yeah, I, I think it was, it was tough, but it was tough just on the right side of, you know, being too tough. Um, but I would say, you know, the reason, one of the reasons that I left was from a, like a sustainability perspective, like the lifestyle was something I didn't want to do. Yeah. I was, was there like a, was there like a point where you got to, and you were just like, you know, this isn't it. Like, did, was it a moment or was it like a continuing thought? Like, how, how did that actually come about? So I don't think there was a moment. I think, I think I was probably, I, I get bored of stuff like super quick. Right. So I kind of, I kind of try something and I like it for a while. And I'm like, okay, like, you know, I've ticked that box, like next thing. And so probably after like, you know, maybe 18 months or so in the role, I knew I was going to get this opportunity or I was very likely to get this opportunity, which is called like, um, uh, an offer to return, which is basically if you're doing well and you've been there two years, you can leave, you can go and do something else and you can come back. And so I knew that this date was coming up and I just wanted to get to that date. And I was like, once I get to that date, that's it. I'm out. I'm going to do something else because I know I have the option that I can always come back. Right. And so I'd, I'd always, I'd always been interested in like startups and entrepreneurship. And so this was like something that had been bugging me for a while. So it was just a great opportunity. Right. So it's like, I can go and take this risk. If it all goes to shit, I just walk back in to my old company, actually, even with a promotion, right? Like it's a bit of a cheat code. Uh, it's, like a win, it's like a one win all around. It's like, I got all these whole other experiences. It's amazing. Yeah. So I, I think that was it. It was like, it was a combination of, um, this win-win like opportunity. Uh, I was getting a little bit bored and I wanted like a bit of a change up from a lifestyle perspective. Okay. And then, so that what happens next? Where, where do you go? Like, do you start scoping out your next thing while you're there? Did you just leave and go, I'm on holiday for a month and go to Bali? Like, what'd you do? No, man, I, I like, I left McKinsey on a Friday, started the new gig on a Monday. So, um, my God, <laughs> this was back when, you know, I was a real go getter. <laughs> um, so I actually got, uh, I was working with somebody at McKinsey whose brother-in-law was running this new Irish, uh, startup. And I'd been talking to her about the fact that I might want to explore opportunities in startups. And she was like, Hey, you should go talk to this guy. So I did, I had a call with him 
And then I went into their office and obviously did enough to impress them that they were wanted to chat with me, but they were kind of trying to figure out what I would actually do. Cause they were like a, maybe a 20 person team at the time in these tiny offices in Dublin. And they were like, what, like, what can you actually do? And I was like, I can do strategy. And stay up to 4 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that, and they were like, uh, okay, we have a strategy. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I need to, I need to rethink what I can do. <laughs> um, and this is kind of my first realization that actually, like, the what a startup needs versus what you know a Fortune 100 company needs, like, are very, very different. Um, and so, I joined them in the most generic role possible, where I was like, yeah, like, I'll just, you know, do some analysis to help you with your marketing and just be a general guy that will work with the CEO and stuff that comes up stuff that comes up <laughs> yeah like literally it was the most random most random job but then i was there like two months and they decided to let go their head of marketing and it was just like right place right time uh they were like steven do you want to do this and i was like sure like i have no idea what i'm doing but i'll give it a crack so it was just really lucky and i kind of just fell into this this role. And so I led marketing then for them for, for about a year. Yeah. So someone put you in touch with them, you're going in there and you had this initial chat, but like you must have had like a few ideas or options in front of you or like leaving McKinsey after two years, you can, you can go do most things. So did you think about other stuff or were you just like, I'm just going to see where my feet take me? I think I probably applied to maybe a couple of other things, but I don't think there was, I don't think I got in very far down the line with any of them. Um, I think I just got, I got this offer. Like, like it's so funny when you look back, I was like, Oh, like it worked out. It was a good decision, but it was mainly luck, right? Nothing to do with my ability to make decisions or my insight. I just, I just got the, I, whatever way it worked, I got through the process pretty quickly with them. They made me an offer. It meant I could leave McKinsey like pretty soon. I was like, yeah, I'm kind of done with McKinsey. Okay, done. Whatever. Like, let's just, let's just do it. So honestly, I didn't think about it that much. I just, I really wanted to go work in a startup. Like I really, really wanted to work in startups. And this was, you know, one of the only really cool ones that was going on in, uh, in Ireland. Um, at that time. So I'm sure there was other stuff that I would have looked at and applied for. Um, but basically this one just moved quickly and I, I just didn't really think and just did it. How did, uh, how did you find that, that change? You go from highly structured, working around people that pretty much all work the same way into a startup environment where it's more chaotic and ad hoc requests. Oh yeah. Like it's, it's, it's hard. Um, but the only thing is, and this is a good thing about somewhere like McKinsey, is that it's almost like being in the Navy SEALs or something, where it's like, you might go and do something after that, and it's going to be different, but it probably won't be harder. And you just kind of build this muscle where you're like, right, well, I can I can figure stuff out, even if I don't know exactly what I'm doing. And realistically, I can always just work my way out of a hole if I have to, which is not the best, but like I, I used, even in Let's Get Checked, like the company that I went to, people worked, you know, reasonably hard, but it was usually like nine to six, 
I was like, right, I'm just going to get in at like 7.30 and like leave at 8 and I'll just work longer than everybody. And then, you know, that'll help. I'll figure stuff out. So I did that, but it was hard. Like you learn a few lessons, right? Like at the start, I was like, you know, making decks and stuff. And they were like, we don't fucking care. Like, we don't, like, what can you do with that? Like, can that deck help us get more customers this month? No. Okay. Well, then don't do it. Do something else. So you kind of quickly realize you have to be much, much more hands-on, much, much more operational. Like you have to do stuff in the real world uh, to actually make an impact. And that was a bit of a realization, but then I actually really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed that very tangible aspect of the work. That was fun. Yeah. Awesome. And then like, so how old are you at this point? You've left McKinsey. How old are you now? It's probably like 20, maybe 24. Yeah. And uh, at that point, do you think, like, how, how I guess, like, comfortable did you feel like with your career playing out? You're 24, you've just left McKinsey. Like, did you feel, oh, i got a direction set here? Or were you just thinking, I have no idea what's going on. I'm just going to see what I can do. I think I I think it was more the latter, to be honest with you. Um, because I was enjoying working in the startup, I knew I had the option to always go back to McKinsey, right? So it was kind of, I didn't know what direction my career was going in, but I knew I had options and that felt good. And I also, I think I knew that I was pretty early on still. Um, so I wasn't, I don't think I was too worried about it at that point. Like I knew I was still growing. I knew I was still doing things that were fun. Uh, I think the, you know, maybe the career or the doubts around what I was doing started to creep in over the next year or so, but but maybe not so much at that point. Did your life change when, in terms of like your work-life balance, things like that, when you left McKinsey and went to the startup? Yeah, I mean, 100%. Like, you know, from... I was just around now, right? Like I would leave on Monday morning. I would get back like late Thursday night. So everything from, like I didn't really hang out with my housemates. I couldn't train for rugby. I would just try and maybe show up at matches in the weekend, which wasn't great. Um, I couldn't do, like even on Sunday evenings, I'd be so worried about getting up in the morning for a flight that I'd really struggle to enjoy Sunday evenings. So it was really nice just to get all of those little things back again to be able to go training my girlfriend at the time was in dublin so i was able to hang out with her able to hang out with the lads go for a swim after work during the summer uh sunday evening we used to go and watch nfl in this like pub down the road which is great crack so i kind of added all those things like back into my life which had been missing in in previous years and and like that was really nice and i think this was probably the start of a journey of realizing the value of those things um, and because, you know, when I was at McKinsey, I probably didn't, I probably just thought, oh, they're nice to have. Um, but it was so nice to have them, have them back when I started to gain this time back. Yeah. And then, so how long were you at Let's Get Checked for? Little over a year. Not that long. Yeah. Okay. So not that long. And then what happened? Just decided to say, fuck it and move to Australia, basically. <laughs> How, how did you land on Australia for that? Was it the, you know, I go surfing every day. You're just leaning in more and more into this more focused on your lifestyle than job or like, how did this, how did it even come about? 
Yeah, I think it was. So I'd spent a year in Sydney as part of my university degree. So I'd already been in Sydney for a year and I knew what it was like. And I knew that I like this kind of lifestyle for exactly those reasons. Like I like sport, Sydney's super sporty. I like being outside. I like being in the water. You can do all those things in Sydney, but you can also have a good career, right? I think Sydney is quite unique in that in terms of you have all this wonderful lifestyle opportunities. You can live by the beach. You can go surfing every day, but you're also living in a city with 6 million people that has like some of the best companies in the world in it. And there's not too many places where you can get both of those things. So I wanted to do that. My girlfriend at the time was also keen to move to Sydney. Um, I kind of reached a point with let's get checked for a couple of different reasons where I was kind of ready to go. And so uh, we just made the call to to go. I had no idea what I was going to do when I was over there. Um, but it was, yeah, it was definitely more of a, it was 100% a lifestyle choice, like not a career choice. It was a terrible career choice, actually, to be honest with you. Really? Why Why? did you say like terrible career choice? Well, you threw, I, I mean, because I, I threw everything away, right? I was like, I was like leading, leading this growing team at this super fast growing startup um, also had an opportunity to go back to McKinsey if I needed to. And I just decided to move to the other side of the world where, which is in hindsight, and I didn't realize this, like it's, it's very difficult to move some to a new country and get a job that you want. It really is because I've noticed it, especially in the last year or so, there's a lot of people have been moving out to Sydney. And I've been helping them maybe try and find a job or talk to them about like how they can, how they can get a job. And the reality is that one, you're quite restricted on your visa in a lot of places. And so you can't just walk into your dream job because they're going to be like, well, what visa do you have? And I felt that when I first moved over. And the second one is the vast majority of jobs that you get once you're past the graduate level are through your network. And if you move to a new country where you have no network, it's way harder to get a job. It just, it really, really is. So you'll get one, but it, it's going to be harder to get one at the level that you want or in the industry that you want. So you, you're kind of committing to having to stay, take like a momentary step back or at least to stay level, um, which is, I didn't realize at the time, I thought I could just go over there and, and land like, you know, my dream job over there. So why not? Uh, but you can, it, it's very hard. Yep. And like, so did you struggle to get a job at the start or were you one of the lucky ones? No, uh, I wasn't one of the lucky ones. So I took a job at a company at the time, which was like a boutique consulting firm. So I went back to consult- consulting um, basically because they would give me a visa. Honestly, that was it. Like, and didn't, I, I really didn't enjoy the work. Uh, the pay was not great. And yeah, but I didn't have to work that much. It was pretty cruisy and, uh, and I got a visa out of it. So like it, it, but it was a tricky time. This is the point where I was like really questioning what I was doing. Cause I was like, hated my work. I, I was so bored. Like I was in, I was in this in work, like barely doing anything every day. And if anybody's ever been in that situation, like you think it's great, it's great for a day. And then you're bored out of your mind. 
And it's just so, so frustrating. And so that's the point where I was like really starting to question, oh my God, what do I want to do next? But when you have this pressure of it being your visa being tied to your employment, right? And then my girlfriend was on my visa at the time. So it's like, it's even harder. So you're like, I really want to live in this country. So I can't leave this job because then I've got to leave. That's tough. And I know like a lot of people are in that situation and it's, it's not a nice feeling. Yeah. It puts you in a quite a, like head spin just because not only do you start questioning like, what do I want to do? What do I want to get out of this? You actually start questioning, at least in my experience anyway, a little bit more about life. Like you're like, what's the point in all this? Like, this isn't fun. Like, why are we doing all this? Like, did you, did you feel that at all? Oh, for sure. For sure. I think that was probably, th- those times I'd say were very challenging for me. Um, because on paper, I was like, you know, had a fine job, lived in a beautiful part of the world, still going on nice holidays, all this kind of thing. But I definitely had these big questions around like meaning and purpose. I was like, is this, is this it? Like, is this what I'm supposed to do? Just surely there's something a bit more to life than this. Um, so yeah, I, I would have, I would have struggled. I say around those, those, that ye- first year or two, um, when I was in Sydney was, was tough. Yeah. Yeah. And you did it in that, in a lockdown as well. So no, you can't even go home. You can't do anything. You're just stuck. Yes. Yeah. That was an added, um, that added to the whole cocktail as well. So we had, I like, we had like maybe nine months in Australia before lockdown and then lockdown kicked in. We had all that to go through as well. And then, um, what's, I guess like what what do you start doing next right like so you're in this moment you're not enjoying it you're not enjoying your work like what do you start did you start trying to implement anything to like think about this problem like i know like on your podcast you're doing a lot of those like that now like how how you give that advice to people but is there anything then that you that helped you or were you just like kind of like man i'm fucking lost <laughs> oh i was i was pretty lost like i was I, I definitely would have done random things, right? I remember I started going and helping this startup, like basically pro bono, um, just in the evenings because I needed something to care about. Um, but that didn't scratch the, like that wasn't, that wasn't a good use of my time. It, it wasn't the worst thing to do, but it, like, I was like, where, like it wasn't going anywhere. Like it was a bit stupid. Um, I would say, I'd say the answer is no, right? Like I definitely didn't have any process or any good structure to think through, okay, well, how do I figure out what I want to do? How do I make those decisions? And then how do I act on that plan? I didn't have any of that structure. And I think even you can be the most logical, analytical person in the world. But for something like this, I think your head can get too messed up in it. So it's too, it's very difficult to separate out to, to, to look at these kind of feelings of like, oh, I'm frustrated or I don't have a sense of purpose in what I'm doing or I don't find any meaning in it and put them out on a page and try and logically analyze them, right? It's very different. It's very vague, like complex problem. And when it's in your own head, it's very difficult to analyze them in a way that's helpful. So I would say I didn't, 
I didn't have the tools. I didn't really have a good structure for figuring out what I wanted to do. And, you know, it was mainly luck that I just happened to get into something new um, at that point. Like, I, I think you're totally right. When you're, when you're in those moments, like, you can't think your way out of that problem, which is, like, the worst thing. Um, and I think you're a little bit like me in this, is, like, quite an analytical person, like, logic-driven. You try to solve problems, and it's just not something you can think your way out of. And, like, it's, it's quite a hard one. It's like, it, it is that one step in front of the other until you can, until you, you kind of find your way out of it, like, stumbling around in the dark. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and you know, I, I look back and I kind of wonder, do you have to do the stumbling around to find where you want to go? Like maybe maybe you can't really bypass it. Um, maybe you can, right, if you've got like the right right process or like people who can help you out with it. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But I just know it's not a nice place to be in. It's not a nice place to be in where you're like doing something that on paper looks good, but you just feel a bit empty about it all um that's not a nice place to be no it's really not and uh that you didn't stay in that place what what happens what happens next in steven's story so i got an email i got an email in march of 2020 from a guy called aiden corbett who i know through mckinsey and he told me that he had started this new business called Wayflyer and they were looking to come into Australia, enter into Australia. And if I would be available to help him with that. And you're like, yeah, I'm in Australia. I can do that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And this, but the problem was I was still working with the consulting firm at the time. And my visa was tied to that. And there was no way Wayflyer could take over my visa because they weren't even in Australia. Right. So, I basically convinced Aiden and the consulting firm to work together. So I would I worked for Wayflyer through the consulting firm, um, which was good insofar as I got to do work that I was interested in. I got to go and work for this startup again, and, and that really invigorated me, and I really enjoyed that. But it was tough, right, because you see the day rate that gets charged, and all of that money was going to the, like the consulting firm. Like I'd found this job, I'd landed it. I was doing hundred percent of the work. The day rate was going to the consulting firm and I was getting uh, like less than a third of that day rate. Must be a good convincer to be able to convince the CEO to, to go, yes, yeah, screw it. I'm going to, I'm just going to pay a fortune for you. Like, but what did you say to him to get him to do that? I actually don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. But, um, well, look, I think it was probably, it was, it was probably worthwhile from his perspective because he was like, well, I pay this one guy and he opens up a whole business for me and you like a new market. Okay. It's more than I would pay an employee. But like, if you look at the, the ROI on the investment in total, it's probably worthwhile. Um, you know, and, and, and that was at a time when, a lot of tech companies had a lot of money and there was value in speed. So, it, you know, I was, I could be fast and I could get stuff done. And that's probably why. And what did your day to day look like when you took up that role? Crazy. So at the start, I was literally just given this very short email, which was like, 
Here's how we entered the US. Not sure if it'll be the same in Australia, but have a go. And I was like, holy fuck, where do you even start? Like, where do you start? Like, if you, if you were to set up a business and like, the, there's no adult, like you think there's going to be adults, right? That you can just turn to and you can just say, okay, I've got this job. Like, can you like fill me in? How do I actually do this? And they're going to tell you, like, there's no adults in the room to tell you. Like, there's only like 10 people in Wayflower. Like none of us had a fucking clue like what, what was actually going on. So my day today was so random. I was sitting in my bedroom cause we were in lockdown and just having calls with like, just pulling on random threads to figure out like what it is that I would need to do. Eventually I found a law firm and I was like talking a lot to them because we had to set up all these companies and set up all these legal structures and navigate like tax and financial law and all this sort of stuff to try and get the company set up. And so it was this very, very tangible like problem. Um, that's kind of fun to go after. I spent so much time talking to banks uh, trying to open a bank account which was took like three months, um, like doing like, honestly, the most mundane stuff, like getting certificates sent to my apartment, which I would then have to send to Dublin for them to sign with like a, a pen, like in wet ink and post back to me. And inevitably they lost them. And like, it was just the most, a lot of it was the most mundane shit. Like it sends, it sends sex. You'd be like, oh, I, oh, I entered Wayfire into, you know, new markets, but a lot of it is pretty, um, pretty mundane, but then it got more fun. I found an office, we opened an office, hired in the first couple of people, and then it started to be more like an actual company and you're running it as opposed to running around, you know, chasing documents. Yeah. But that like those early bits where it's maybe a bit more mundane, like that builds trust, right? Like that's, it's, it's a part of like early parts of most jobs that you got to build up that, that trust and credibility and kind of do the stuff that you kind of need to. And then they go, okay, here's the bigger things. Yeah. And and I think like for this situation, it wasn't that, you know, they were getting to me to do the mundane things. It just, they were actually getting me to do this big thing, which was enter into a new market. It just happened that a lot of, it just happened that a lot of the things I needed to do to enter into the market were very mundane. And it kind of comes back to that point earlier about like ultimate ownership, right? It's just like your job is to open up Wayflyer in Australia. Like that's when your job, your first job is done. And we don't give a shit what you have to do to make that happen. You know, whether it's sexy or not sexy, whether it's mundane or not mundane, that's the goal. It doesn't really matter how you get there. And so that's what I was doing. Was that quite a stressful process? At times, because there's a lot of uncertainty. So like, I had no idea. I kind of, I think I picked like a... I think I started started full-time maybe in March or April. And I was like, by August, we're going to be up and running. I just like pulled this month like out of my arse. And then, uh, and then I was like, oh shit, like I have no idea if this is in any way reasonable. So that was a little stressful. Um, it's also stressful when you're dealing with stuff that you have no idea about. Like I was talking to these lawyers, like they're reading, I was like, I don't, I don't understand where you, I don't even understand where you're talking about. Like, like, I don't even, are you speaking the same language as me? I don't know. Um, but I think that's, again, coming back to, that's a good thing about McKinsey, right? Or working in a consulting firm. You're comfortable with the unknown. You're comfortable taking on a task where you have no idea how you're going to figure out because your skill is figuring stuff out. Your skill is not doing X or doing Y or doing Z. Your skill is, I can figure stuff out. 
and I can do it. So of course it's a little bit uncomfortable, but you know, it, thankfully I spent the last kind of three or four years doing something kind of similar. It definitely sounds like, like t- two things that are standing out to me. And so like this journey that you've been on is the first one is exactly what you just said, right? It's, it's the, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to figure it out. I, I'm just, I'm just going to have to do that. And it's like kind of, I guess some people call it growth mindset, um, maybe some others resilience and stuff like that. But like, it's really just being like a bit curious and doing that. And I guess that's such a valuable thing when you don't really know what you're trying to figure out with your life. Like just being like, I don't know. I'm just going to try it and see how it goes and like figure it out and iterate. And like, that's such a valuable thing. And the second one it sounds like is, you kind of jumped into a few of these experiences being like, you know, I kind of want to just do this. And then like, I'm not going to think about it too much, but take a little bit of a risk and do this. Like you gave up a lot to go to Australia. Like when you start taking on this, um, I guess, convincing someone to go through this uh, consulting company that you're at, um, like you're taking risks by doing this, but it seems like some of it's paid off. 100%. I mean, like one of my biggest learnings has been about the value of risk, right? You can look at a 10 person startup and say, why the hell would I join that? Chances are it's going to be dead in 12 months or 24 months. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is this could be the next unicorn or the next decacorn or the next Facebook. And what if it is? And the upside of risk. So, I think like I, I had a big epiphany when I look at like it, it's primarily like the easy way to look at it is from a, like a financial perspective. So if you look around and actually the guy who was running the consulting firm that I worked for, I was like, he's a great guy. He's very charismatic. He wasn't like crazy intelligent. He wasn't like crazy charismatic and he'd built a really nice life for himself. Like he was earning good money through this consulting firm. And wasn't able to work that much, had a nice car, you know, had a nice house in Bondi, bought a second house up in Byron. I was like, this guy's doing well for himself. What does he, and I was like, what, what is his secret? Like, and it was just that he had an appetite for risk. He had a really big appetite for risk. He had taken lots of risks throughout his career. A lot of them had never worked out, but it didn't matter because the one or two that did work out paid off big time. And it's this, this like, it was a massive, massive learning for me is like, Risk, understanding risk, understanding when to take risks is really important and using risk as a way to buy a ticket, like a lottery ticket for a really big upside is is really important. So that's how you start to think about risk. Like, do you think that applies? What, what, what else does that apply to? Do you think that just applies to like your work? Like, do you think it goes at like a bit further afield? Like you've talked a lot about like this prototyping your life. So do you think it goes into a lot of different other areas? Oh, 100%. Like, I think it's, um, I would almost struggle to find an area where it doesn't apply. Right. So it's when I think about the running the podcasts, I send emails or DMS to potential guests like every single day. And every one of those is like a tiny little risk. Because there's a good chance they say no or they turn you down or, you know, you feel a bit embarrassed about it, whatever else. But every now and again, somebody says yes. Now you've got this amazing guest who's going to come on your show. 
right? So like, that's a very small way to look at it. And it's like, it is a muscle, like you build up your appetite for risk. And it's not that you take stupid risks, like you still need to be calculated about it. But yeah, like 100%, you, you know, you can put it into any situation or even like, I don't know, like um, relationships, right? Whether it's friends or potential partners as well. If you don't take any risk, right? If you don't approach the girl, if you don't ever say hello, like there's no chance that you're ever going to end up having a relationship with somebody if you never approach them. I'm still not very good at this. I'm still way too shy. But like, <laughs> but I, li- I like to think that, you know, conceptually, I understand the value of risk, even if I don't necessarily do it all the time. <laughs> yeah yeah little risks we'll we'll start with dms maybe someday we'll approach people in person you know (laughs) you just gotta keep putting one foot in front of the other yeah but i get it right it's like learning the to be comfortable within that risk is like a super important skill at least i think so anyway um like even just being able to think you know, like I had a habit of going, oh, it, it might not happen or this could fail or things like that. And like kind of just spinning, it's like, well, instead of saying, what if this could fail? Like just thinking like, what if this is the best thing ever? And like, that's been something that's really like, I, as soon as I started thinking that way, I got out of a much more negative mindset. into this like positive way, just like, you know, I don't care. I just can see what happens. And also knowing that there's these ups and downs that happen and like, you got to try and force yourself. Like you're always going to be on this like wave of going up and down in your emotions. And what you want to try and do is like minimize the variation, at least the way I think about it anyway, and try and keep this trend relatively upward, but you're going to be up and down on this, this trend line. It's not flat. It's slightly up way. If you can keep that, then that's the important thing. And knowing that like, there's going to be these good bits and bad bits and just trying to push that forward. I think it's like a really good way to think about this. Yeah. I, I, I really like that. I really like, and, you know, cause that, that shows the, that shows the upside of risk instead of just focusing on the downside of risk. But also I did this really interesting exercise um, when I was at McKinsey. So when you're there for two years, you get brought away to this like training camp and it's really interesting. They teach you all these kind of things, but there's also almost a, <laughs> I dare to say like spiritual, but it kind of is like, there's a bit of a soul searching kind of part of the whole training. And I had this one instructor and I sat down with him and I think I was struggling a bit at the time. I was feeling a bit anxious about like work and like feeling the pressure that we were talking about earlier. And he went through this exercise, which was asking what if, but in the negative case. So he was like, well, what if you did make a mistake in your Excel model? And I was like, well, that would be terrible because then it would end up going into the deck that we presented to the client. He was like, okay, well, what if that happened? And I was like, well, then the client's going to maybe make a bad decision or they're going to find out in front of the partner or whatever else. And he basically forced me down this descending stairs of what ifs. At each step, I had to tell him the worst case scenario until you get to the very end. And ultimately at the end of this what if stairs, I get fired, right? <laughs> and his point was like, okay, you get fired. What then? And I was like, his whole point was basically like, even if the absolute worst case scenario happened at every single step on that stairs, you're all right. It's not the end of the world. I was like, well, you know, 
I've got two years at McKinsey. I'd probably find another job. Still got a house, got enough savings, be okay. And there's kind of comfort in that as well. So I think, uh, you know, understanding that the downside usually isn't that bad. And as you said, the upside could be amazing and framing it in that way, that positive light is a very good way to better understand risk and use it in your decision-making. Yeah. So I actually have a similar thing, Um, but it was from, I think it was like maybe it was on social, one of the socials I saw it. There was this Tom, Tom Hanks was talking in this like room. You may have seen it. And he says like this quote, he's like, this too shall pass. And he's like, things are like going bad, not too good. Like this too shall pass. He's like, you think things are fucking amazing? Like you're on top of the world. Nothing could go wrong. This too shall pass. And it's like this way of knowing that like, no matter what like is going on, there's going to be a tomorrow if you make it happen. And just, it can only, it's only going to change. And the, the only thing you can control is just that I'm going to put a positive foot forward. Like that's the tense that Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And I think being comfortable in those low bits as well. Because I think you need, what I find helpful is like having a story for the low bits, because as you said, like you will have them, but if you can give them like a a sense of meaning, that can be very helpful. So like I have the, you know, the, the man in the arena quote, you know, this whole one, like this is like above my, my desk at home. And this is what gives me, this is like the story that I tell myself if I fail at something. I'm like, okay, you failed, like you fucked up, like you really did. You didn't win, you messed it up, whatever else, but you're in the arena. Like you have to have losses to have wins. And it gives that low, that down point, like a meaning and you can tell yourself a story about it, which really helps. Whereas if you don't have something like that, you're feeling shit and that's it. You're just shit. There's no, there's no, there's no silver lining to that. Uh, so that's something that's been helpful for me. But you're uh, so where you're at in your story, you're uh, you're just getting this opportunity with Wayflyer. You're putting your positive foot forward. You, what happens? Like, where where does it where does it go then? You're going at the minute, just like helping them set up. What happens next? So frankly, I would just went balls to the wall for like the next three years with Wayflyer. So I worked my ass off for like three years. Um, and it was great. It was an absolute unbelievable journey because we were growing like crazy. We were hiring people, we were raising money, we were doing cool stuff. It was just an amazing journey. Worked with really, really cool people. So I kind of led like the Australian business for probably about a year until I like hired in all the people in there, like some really good people to run that. And then I switched over back to, you know, my time as a marketer so i came back and uh was head of marketing and then built up that team there so it was a really really great run until it all ended in a bit of a ball of flames at least for me and a lot of my colleagues um in november uh, of last year so in november of last year um wayfair announced like a huge round of redundancies and so as part of that like i was I was let go and that was the first time I was ever let go from a job. So it was like quite a shock um, and was, yeah, a bit of a unfortunate end to otherwise what was honestly a really amazing, like few years at a, at a cool company. 
How did you feel about that? When you, when you, like, how did you, well, how did you find out, first of all? Did they call you? Did you get, like, an email? Anyone's been through this process, it's really weird, right? Because when there's, like, mass layoffs done, it's all under wraps, pretty much. So there was whispers maybe, like, two days before. And then at, like, 7 p.m., I had my one-to-one with the CEO, like, Aiden. And then at 8 p.m., there was like a group all hands, like for the whole company. And so at 7 p.m., he told me. And then at 8 p.m., he told the whole company. And basically, uh, I think it was like, you know, you would have an email if you'd, if you'd been let go, like in your inbox, that kind of thing. So it's it's pretty ruthless. Like, um, So yeah, that was... And the way they have to do it is it's super scripted, right? So because they have, they need to be really careful about like legal liability with all these like redundancies and stuff. So the CEO basically has a script and he reads it off and that's what you hear. Like, how did that feel? Cause obviously you work and work quite closely with them. Oh, good for shit. And shit, like shit. Like honestly, like shit. Like I'd, I'd known this guy for like, you know, maybe six years um worked with him like directly worked with him for like three years on like building this company um so yeah like it feels like shit like i i under i really understood his position i felt for him because i was like this has got to be a really hard thing to do you know like maybe if you're a complete psychopath like you just don't you know with no emotions it's easy for you uh, I don't think he is like that. <laughs> I can imagine that it was very, very, like, very, very tough for him. What about for you? When, like, you immediately heard this, uh, what's the first thing that comes to your head when when he's telling you, other than just pure shock? Yeah. Um, I think there was a couple of things. So... One was like my whole department was let go. So all the people that I had hired were let go, uh, my entire team. And I felt a lot of responsibility for that because I convinced a lot of these people to leave their jobs and to come and work at Wayflower. And now they'd been let go. And I felt responsibility for that. And also I was like questioning, myself, maybe if I had done a better job running this department, the department wouldn't have been let go as part of these this round you know so i felt that but i've i've learned a couple of things about like dealing with those kind of things like one is like you have to when something like that happens like it is good to sit with those emotions because what i previously would have done which has been like these are not good emotions don't like them bottle them up put them in the press and just like move on and be like no positive positive thoughts positive thoughts um but that's not very good because like they still linger um, and they can come back and bite you. But the second thing that I had learned was that uh, not to be too hard on yourself and like be kind to yourself because it'd be really easy for me in that situation. I definitely had thoughts that would have like about beating myself up and with all those things like oh my god you hired all these people now they've got no job you convince them to leave if you'd only ever done a better job if you'd worked a bit harder like they could have done better like those thoughts cross your mind but like i kind of learned 
like you have to be kind to yourself because if you're going to beat yourself up like you have no hope so um yeah that those were kind of the things that came up for me and then how long did it take like like what did you do immediately after that like did you just go yeah like what did you do I would just really wanted to try and do what was best for everyone that was on my team. So I was like, right, this is shit. My last act, I can at least look after them and and try and make this uh, as least bad as possible for them. So I was just kind of calling, like calling them, having chats with them, like just trying to listen to them in the immediate aftermath and then kind of as the days or weeks go on, like trying to do what I could maybe to help them find a new job or to process it or, or whatever else. I think then was, it was only, but I wasn't angry, which was interesting until I started talking to other people and I started talking to other people and they were like, I can't believe you've been like, Oh, that's so bad. Like you've been here so long all this sort of stuff. And I was, I hadn't really thought about it in that way. And then they started to get me angry. And I was like, fuck yeah. Like you're, <laughs> I was like, maybe I should be angry. <laughs> and so, so then I got a little bit angry. Um, but, but that passed, that passed to you. And like, you know, like the, the reality was that at the time I had been considering like moving on. So it was, like it was just a bit fortunate for me that it wasn't like a huge uh a huge change to my life plans right i wasn't i wasn't there going right my entire life plans are built around being at wayflower for the next three years and then crash i now have to figure all this out from scratch that wasn't the situation which was just lucky for me um i did uh, yeah i didn't have to go and you know reevaluate my whole life at that point so how long did it take you to, I guess, process all this? Like, are you still processing it? Are you are you over the fact? Like, because it, it can't be easy to tell people, you know, like, like I've been like on my job. No, it's not. Um, I still sometimes lie, to be honest, <laughs> or shy away, or I frame it in a way, in an avoidant way. And so I go, I say something like, you know, when I finished up at Wayflower, um, <laughs> which is like... <laughs> Uh, which is tough, but yeah, it's, it's definitely tough, right? Like nobody, it's tough on the ego. Um, nobody likes to kind of have to say that they've been let go. Um, you know, it's an admittance of, or it can appear like an admittance of failure, even if it's not right. If a company lets go half of their staff, a lot, like most of that is not due to performance. It's just because like, it, it just can't be, um, I, I, I feel like I've processed it now. I think I don't hold grudges, but I do like having um a, something I can use as fuel. So, you know, I definitely, yeah, I don't have, I don't, like, I, I definitely want to have any kind of like personal grudges or anything like that because like I know that like they were just doing what's in the best interest of the company and like, frankly if you're in this that position you probably have to do something similar um but it is also nice to have a little bit of fuel where i go all right fuck it fuck it i'm gonna show you now you know i've I've definitely always harnessed that um as a bit of a motivator in my own life 
Where, where do you think that's come from? Do you think that's like from sports? Um, I think I, I know exactly where it's come from. It's, it's like from, from as a kid. So as a young kid, like when I was very young, um, I would have felt, I definitely had a lot of moments of like feeling quite powerless. So I was bullied as a young kid when I was maybe about like 10 or 11 or maybe even younger actually. And I really felt that like, and, and actually in secondary school. So you kind of like, when if you're bullied, like you really have just a sense of powerlessness as something's out of your control. And I was like a very small, like physically small kid. Um, and then also with teachers, strangely enough. So some teachers like really didn't like me and would kind of put me in a hole. Um, and I was just, I just remember having this like, fuck, I'm going to show you. I'm going to like, this is kind of like, deep like fueling sense of like one day you're gonna see chip on the shoulder mentality it keeps you going keeps that drive i guess like it is and uh helps you be um, ambitious i guess which is which is difficult right because or it's not difficult but you need to make sure that you're using it in the right way because and i found this out um, really only in the last two years is that if if you let that chip on your shoulder or that fuel like power um, if that's what's guiding all of your decision making you can make bad decisions because you're doing stuff just to prove to somebody else which is a terrible reason to do something right like and I've definitely done things because I'm like, oh, I'm like subconsciously, I need to show them I'm successful. I have to be successful to like prove to, you know, my third class teacher that I'm actually a success. Like, like they fucking care, do you know? <laughs> and so you got to be careful about that. Um, but I think having a little bit of it is, is actually kind of good. Having this chip on your shoulder and stuff like that, like obviously it can be a driving factor. But also, like, it can be quite a negative thing because you can have this this build-up of thing where it, it's kind of hard to go from saying, you know, like, I'm a, I, I'm a consultant at McKinsey or I've wor- I'm working at this, uh, like, unicorn startup and then to go to now be, being let go of that company and then, like, do you still feel like the ties to be like, you know, oh, I, I got let go, but I used to work at this or I used to do these things. Or are you trying to just look forward now? I think that like desire is always there a little bit. And the need to prove to se- yourself to others. Yeah, hundred percent. Like if you meet somebody new, right? Like what do you do? Right. I'm like, right now I do nothing. Right. <laughs> you know, um, almost like the ultimate flex though isn't it it's like i don't need i don't do anything yeah yeah maybe maybe but like you know there's like it's very easy like if you work at mckinsey it's like oh i work at mckinsey and a lot of people if well a lot of people haven't heard of it but if they have they're like oh that's cool that's cool right it's like a shortcut um but i think like i don't know i've just been over the last few years, like trying to push myself more and more and more, like not to derive my sense of self-worth from my job, right? And it's a very natural thing when you meet somebody new, you're going to ask them what they do. But like, sometimes you don't. 
and then it's quite nice and like you can have whole conversations with people and then have great conversations and have still no idea what they do for their job. And I think that's actually a great way to do it. So look, yeah, I feel, I sometimes do feel the pressure, but I tr- I just, it's going to sound cliche, but I just try not to worry too much what people think of me. And that's been a big thing for me. Like I used to care a shit ton what people think about me. I definitely still do a little bit, but I just try less and less. And if they are going to think something about me, I want it to be about like, you know, how I am as a person or how I made them feel, or if I was able to help them or do some good for them or whatever else. Like if somebody thinks you're a good person because you work at McKinsey, if somebody's like, oh, he works at McKinsey, he's great. Like, you know, that's not really the type of person that you want to be hanging around with realistically. So it's tough, but yeah, just trying not to, not to drive my sense of self-worth from my job um, and just care a bit less what people think about me. Makes sense. And I, so I want to go back a little bit. So like you've just, you finished up away flyer. Uh, you start, you've come to terms of like the news of everything. You've chatted to the people that were in your team. At what point does the Jeep come into this? that's a good question so i already had the jeep i bought the jeep in like august of last year which is kind of hinting towards the plans that you know or the idea that i might have been looking to move on but basically i bought the jeep in august of last year and i'd been thinking about going on a big big road trip around australia i'd gotten into camping since i loved australia and so then it's good timing when i got let go had all these times my all this time on my hands i was like right that's it i'm going I set the date of, I think, like 17th of January was when I was going to leave and I was going to drive across the country. And I just started kidding out, kidding out my car. So I spent like a lot of hours um, just kidding out the Jeep, building it so that I could live out of it for like, you know, three or four months. How long did that, how long did that process take? Oh, it took me, uh, it took me like, I probably started doing stuff in October and I, it took me right up until I left, like in January 17th. So like three months, easily three months uh, to get it all ready to go, which actually is not that bad. Like people spend like, honestly, like way longer. So I definitely did it in an accelerated timeline. And was this, and this was after you left Wayflow, you started doing all the main, like doing it up? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, like I tinkered around with like little bits and pieces like beforehand, but like uh, once I left was when I really kind of, started focusing on it big time what uh did you learn anything from that experience about yourself like when you're just building this thing? yes for sure i learned that i actually really like doing physical tangible projects and um, i'm missing having one right now so i'm trying to think about one to to pick up and do next um yeah i really enjoyed it like i really 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 enjoyed it um, just like taking on a new challenge, like learning something new, even if you've no idea about it. I started to get also a bit more comfortable with the lack of perfection. So usually I like things to be quite perfect. And, uh, you know, as a first time carpenter, building stuff to go into my Jeep, you you quickly have to get okay with imperfection and um, because it's never going to be perfect. So yeah, I really, I really, I really miss having something like a little project to work on. So I'm trying to pick pick a new one. Mm. So is that like so outside of is this whole experience making you think more about like outside of work and what you can do 
if you're not doing like trying to just bring the money in. That's, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like I, I think a big realization I've had is, yes, I think people should find meaning and purpose from their work, but it's not the only place that you can get satisfaction, right? I think it's, you know, er- everybody has different things that they enjoy and maybe you found them, maybe you haven't, but you should just fill your life up with those things. And so if it's a project where you're building something or you're kitting out your car, if it's painting, if it's playing music, if it's playing sports, if it's reading a book, whatever it is, like just do those things more. Like, <laughs> so that's, what, <laughs> that's, that's what I find is like, you know, if you have these things, I I found this as a new thing that I like doing. And now I'm like, right, that's, that's great because when I pick my next project, you know, in the evenings or at the weekends, instead of just like sitting in and watching Netflix, or whatever, I'm going to go and do this yoke because it's a good, it, I, I find it very satisfying. Like I lose track of time. I think that's one of the best tests for understanding if you really enjoy something is like, if you lose track of time doing it, if you haven't looked in at your phone for like two hours, whatever you've been doing in those two hours was probably pretty engaging and 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 probably pretty uh, satisfying and uh was it during building this building the g-pop that you started thinking about the podcast or is that just a whole other idea i think it was a bit separate um i kind of wanted to do a podcast for a little while i'd had a few different ideas um i actually started hosting like wayflyers podcast when i was there um and i enjoyed that process of hosting and then i was like hey I'm going to be going and having these conversations anyway. So my whole idea was like, right, I'm taking this time out from work. I'm going to drive across the country in my Jeep and I'm going to try and figure out what I want to do next. Like I'd never actually taken the time to sit down and be like, right, I've n- my only job right now is to figure out what I want to do and, and, and treat that as my job. And now I had the time. I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm interested in that process. I'm going to go talk to lots of interesting people. I thought there's a lot of people my age or in their 20s or their 30s who were going through something similar, who had done a job maybe for 5, 6, 10, 15 years, done well at it, but were starting to question, like, is this it? Is there something more that they should be doing instead? or something that they could find a bit more meaning and purpose of. So I thought there was a need or a problem to be solved. And I was like, I'm going to be having these conversations and I, and I wanted to record the podcast. So I didn't really have much of a plan for it, but I recorded one. And uh, then I was like, okay, now I have to record a second one. So that was it. And then now what, what number are you on now? Like day of recording? Um, like 15. Yeah, I think 15. So... Yeah, it's good. So my goal is to get to 40. What, just by completion or by the end of the year? No, by the end of the year. So I'm going to, uh, my goal is I have to publish every week. Um, have to publish every week. That's the goal I set myself. And then get to 40. Because I think there's a stat which is like, I I think it's only one, per, uh, sorry, 10% of podcasts get to 10 episodes. And then of those, only 10% get to 20 episodes which essentially only 1% of podcasts ever get to 20 episodes. So I'm definitely going to hit that. 
Uh, so then I was like, right, well, if I can get to 40, I'm probably in, you know, maybe the 0.1% or the 0.5% of podcasts in terms of number of episodes. Is this the shoulder coming back? <laughs> maybe, but with, no, well, do, do, do you know what it is though? It's, well, yeah, I think it's good to have a bit of a, like a, a chip in the shoulder gold, which is motivating, but also like, um, I started to really like process goals instead of outcome goals. So I could have set an outcome, which is like, I want to get, you know, 10,000 downloads to the podcast this year. Right. But like, I can't control how many downloads the podcast gets. What I can control is like the input or the process. So I, I can, I've, it's 100% in my control, whether I reach 40 podcast episodes this year. I'm the only one responsible for that. Now, if I hit that, I think a lot of good things will come out of it. I'll learn a lot about the topics that people like, that people don't like. And so I might get to 10,000 downloads or I might not. But focusing on the process goal is is much better for me. Like all my goals this year are pretty much, pretty much process focus. Yeah, so they're like focusing on those inputs instead. Like instead of... I don't know, like I'm I'm gonna get shredded, six pack abs, all those things. It's like I'm gonna go to the gym four times a week. Like and just like those inputs, you know. Exactly. Exactly. It's a I think it's a it's a much nicer way to set goals. And I think you're also more likely to even reach the outcomes that you do want to achieve anyway. I think you're more likely to reach those if you just set input goals instead of output goals. So what what have you learned? about yourself, about things like that, since starting this podcast, like on this journey that you've been a guest for like, well, maybe like the last six months now that you've not been working, just just doing this. Oh, a, a ton of things. So actually in episode 14, um, I kind of go through ans- an answer to a similar question, which was like the common themes across like all the people that I've interviewed, right? And so like, what did I learn that's common across each of those? And so there's, there's tons there. So it's kind of around, um, you know, you have to become, becoming a real student of yourself is important. So you have to spend the time to learn about yourself, to figure out what you're good at, what you're bad at, what do you like, what do you dislike, what are your values? That's really important. I learned that momentum is magic, right? Like if you want to do something, the best way that you can get start, the best what thing you can do to achieve that outcome is just to start just to do one tiny, tiny thing. Um, lots more appreciate the value of risk. That's a big one. A lot of the people I've talked to have all taken risks. Um, and on the other side of those risks have been some of the best things that's happened to them. What about yourself on this journey? I realized I really like making content actually. So like, I, I, I really like doing the podcast. Right. It's something that I could, I'll, I'll lose track of time of when I'm speaking to people. I enjoy that. Um, I'm trying to think what else have I learned about. I learned a lot about my my own values. Um, I could probably do an episode on that because I did this whole like thing about life design, right, where you structure like it's just this whole process for like figuring out what you want to do. And I did that a couple of months ago and I have all these notes written down in my notebook that I'd love to revisit because it's a little while ago. I could almost do, uh, I probably should have looked at them before I did this, but 
<laughs> it would have been it would have been very helpful because it's a little while ago and it's like but when you do these exercises they're really really helpful and you actually figure out what you do kind of value like, like weird things i figured out i wanted kids <laughs> that's a bit of a weird one <laughs> like which beforehand beforehand i wouldn't have necessarily said that i did or i would have been unsure about it but you know i've never really done this kind of life planning where you actually look five or ten years ahead and you say well what do i want my life to look like in those positions it's not like okay i'm going to work this exact job to get there but it's just like well if i took a snapshot of my life what would i look like it to look like um i did this really interesting exercise actually which is part of like the life design process where i learned a lot which is this concept of a life dashboard. So you've kind of got these four categories, which is work, health, play, and love. And you kind of rank yourself out of those four categories. And I ranked really well on play and health, basically because I was, I'm generally pretty healthy. And also like I was driving around the country in my Jeep, like surfing every day at the time. So like I was having a lot of fun, um, but then on work side of things, like I didn't have a job. So I was like, okay, well that's, that's definitely somewhere that I should focus. Right. And then I also realized on the, the love category, I'd scored quite lowly as well because I, had, you know, I live in Australia. I've got some really great friends there, but a lot of my friends and family are at home. Right. And last year I broke up with my girlfriend. So like, I don't have a partner anymore. And it's kind of, it's not nice. It doesn't feel good to like address that, right? To actually say, oh, like I'm not, I'm not scoring well on like the amount of love in my life right now. Um, but I think it's important because when you recognize it, then you can be like, right, well, I, you know, I need to prioritize this as an area because it does, it, it is important. It does matter. And, you know, I would not go and choose a job right now that's going to make it very difficult for me to, you know, find a partner or to spend time with friends and family over the next three or four years. Like that would be a, a really bad idea for me. And that's not something that I was thinking about at all, you know, six months ago. No, it's really cool. It's like a... It's like a framework for making decisions in a way, like very high level. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's helpful. Definitely helpful. No, you're like, it's, it's totally right. Like you need a framework for thinking about decisions in your life. Like, and it's, it's actually something, um, I don't know if it's been spurred on by listening to your podcasts or, uh, me just, I don't know, I've started running more. So I'm spending more time with my own thoughts. And I don't know if it's one of those two, but I've started thinking about a similar thing. Like how, do I, how am I going to make decisions in my life? Um, and I think if I was to look at the, like my dashboard for it, I'd, I'd probably be in a similar place except for the work. Like I love my job. Um, but like, and I think right now my life is very much optimized for, for work and play, I guess. Um, but there's other areas to like look in and it's like having to think, and I think coming up, I think those dash, having a dashboard and like this way of being able to think about how you make these these decisions is going to be like super important. So uh, I'll probably go back and have a more listen, uh, another listen to your bot to those episodes and uh, see where we get to. Yeah, and uh, like you you start so you start to use that implement that and um, through this podcast. What about like you're driving across Australia, like you did all that, and other than like 
deciding that you're going to do this podcast? Like, what else did you learn about yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I learned that I can't live on the road for more than three months, right? Like, I'm not one of these people who can live out of a van for like a year. I realized that. Like, it, it was an amazing, amazing trip for those few months. But like, by the time I was, I was done. Like, I was really done, both in terms of like, just wanting to have some comforts like back in my life, but also I really struggle to do, uh, to do nothing. Like I need a productive focus. Um, and for a while that was because I was, I derived like my sense of value from like doing something productive. So like I would even, you see even struggle being on holidays. Cause I was like, well, oh, I can't just relax. Like, I need to do something. I need to write something or learn something or, listen to a podcast to learn something, right? I was like obsessed with like being productive, uh, which is not, was not good. Right. But what I did, I, I think now it's in a healthier place where I've realized, okay, I'm able to relax, but I just don't like sitting on the beach for like three months in a row. I know that sounds like a very like privileged thing to say, <laughs> I think I'd kill I'd kill for that right now. That'd be so nice. Be on a beach, go surfing two months in a row. <laughs> yeah, like it, look, it's great. It really is, but like I don't know, like I need I need to do something. I could work, you know, half a day and chill on the beach for the second half. But I just I I, I need I need like an outlet. Like I need something to do, whether it's something like creative, like writing or recording a podcast or you know something else like i just found that i needed something to do and i was i was drawn to that so like when i was on the road like i started writing a lot more uh which i really enjoyed i started you know really working on the podcast and recording more podcasts and writing about the podcast and and that was great because then i could do a couple of hours of work and then i could go and relax and i found a lot of satisfaction in that so i i learned that that was important for me to have something that I can do. And I actually learned that I really enjoy creative stuff more, which I'd kind of neglected for a long time. I'd done engineering, worked in McKinsey. These are not the most creative like pursuits in the world. And I really missed, I don't know if I missed because I never really had it, but I really enjoy having like a creative outlet. So whether that's playing music, whether it's writing, making videos, something, even if something just that doesn't, you're not doing it for any point. You're just doing it because it feels good. And that was very enjoyable for me. And so I'm taking that now and I'm trying to do a lot more like creative things in my life because I really enjoy them. So then what's, so what's next on this? You mentioned like you're enjoying a bit of writing. Like where do you see all this going? You're obviously going to have these 40, 40 podcasts this year. Well, can we like, are we expecting a book? This is where you're like, yeah. Five chapters deep now. <laughs> no, not quite. But I did. I did toy with the idea, and because I have a friend from McKinsey who just wrote a book, um, that's actually been released this week, and I was asking him. I was like, "How do you actually write a book? Like, what does that process look like?" Because I, I, I do, I do quite enjoy. I quite enjoy writing. Um, both like the actual practice of writing itself and as well as like the research that goes into it. Like I love learning new things. Um, but no, I, I don't think that's going to happen anytime like in the future. So um, right now 
I'm doing really three things. So I'm doing the podcast and I'm really enjoying that and I'll keep that going. The second thing I'm doing is I've started to do some consulting work for a couple of companies, um, which is kind of like two to three days a week, uh, which is great because it's like doing the sort of stuff that I enjoy. It's prim- a lot of it is focused around content. So I'm kind of building like my skill there, which is something I'm very focused on. I really want to build up my ability to create and distribute content. And then the third thing I'm doing, which is where kind of my long-term focus is, is on working in mental health. So probably the the biggest thing I've learned that I didn't answer in your question earlier was that this is the area that I care most about. This is the only area that I could see myself working in for like 10, 20, 30 years. And, and, and I find it incredibly interesting. So I've got those two things. I've got the podcast, I've got the consulting work. And then the third area is going to be working on building something within the mental health space. I'm not, I have a few ideas. I haven't landed on one specific one yet. And so I'm kind of spending time to like research that and figure out exactly what it is that I want to do. And it's quite nice to be able to do that with one, the long-term view of like, I don't need to figure it out this month or next month. Like if you're, if you think you're going to be working in something in for 30 years, you know, you don't need to rush into something. And also because I've got the other things like the consulting work and the podcast, um, you know, that that's able to keep, you know, just even financially keep me going. So I don't have the pressure to like build something instantly that's going to make me money. So it's, I'm actually pretty happy with the setup that, that I've got right now, but honestly, that's only really came into fruition in the last like week or two. That was really cool. It's really cool. And like, mental like why why mental health why i mean there's there's all these things you can go and do you build up like an awesome skill set like whether it's been through your uh creative outlets like podcasts writing things like that and also your time like working like a wayflyer mckinsey and all those other roles like why why mental health i think the first thing is that what i found is that to get a real sense of meaning from what you're doing, you have to care about it. And I care about this topic. And there's a couple of reasons why I care about it, but I do care about it. And if I think about, if I'm working on that topic, if I hit a tough day or something that's going to require me to do something really hard, if I know that it's going to have a really big impact for people who are struggling from mental illness, either like now or in 10 years time, that's going to push me to go through. If I'm working on something I don't care about, I might be able to convince myself to push through, but ultimately I won't. Right. So I'm kind of in the position where it's like, if you can work on anything, why not work on something you care about? Right. Cause it doesn't like, you have to work on something. You may as well make it something you care about. And so you know, I care about it because like from my own personal experience, I struggled with mental illness, particularly when I was a kid, but a little bit when I was an adult as well. I've had a lot of people that are very close to me um, struggle as well. And like, you know, if ever you see somebody or if you yourself are in that situation, you know that like kind of nothing else matters like <laughs> um, when you're in when you're in that bad situation. Um, so I think it's a very worthwhile thing to do. Uh, 
it's a very big problem. So it's, that's the personal reasons. On a societal level, it's a very big problem, which I think is worth solving. And then I find it very interesting. I find it like very intellectually stimulating to learn about mental health. And I think we're, I wrote an essay on this recently, which is like, we, it feels like we're very early in the stages of understanding mental health. And I think that's very exciting uh, because if you think about like everything that we're going to learn in the next like five, 10, 15, 20 years, like that seems like a really exciting place to be as we discover all these new things and as we start to apply them to be able to help people. So that's a very long answer to why this is the area that I want to work in. No, and, and it's, it's so cool as well. And I think one of the amazing things about doing that is the impact that you're saying on, on people that you end up helping. But, uh, and I know this cause I've been through my own mental health journey, but one of the things that I found I thought was quite interesting is when you come out the other side of it and it takes time for some people and some others a little bit shorter, but like when you come out the other side and you've got that help, you suddenly just like have this completely like different outlook and resilience going through life because you've been through this like really formative time. And I think one of the most challenging things about when you're going through that journey is like you feel alone over through it. Um, and I totally agree. Like it's such an interesting area where we don't understand that much. It's only now, I think over the last few years being talked about more openly being accepted by, uh, multiple like generational stages. If you think like my, my parents talk to me about it now, like five years ago, they absolutely wouldn't have talked to me about those things. So I, I, I get you. It's, it's just a really cool area. Mm. Did, like was that your story that you found that you know coming out the other side that you have kind of increased resilience or like what what was what was that like yeah like i think going through it um i definitely think yes coming out the other side more resilience uh, a much more clearer outlook on like what i believe in and what i want out of my life um I don't think I have it all written down, but it's definitely like there's a lot more clarity. And I think it depends on like the, where someone's mental health problems are coming from. Like my personally, like they came from me feeling it was a lot of it was job related in the position I was in in my life. Like I felt like I could do more and was not getting the opportunities to do it. And I hated the job I was in at the time. I was in this engineering company and it was just like, the people I worked with was good. Like I enjoyed bits of engineering, but I had a boss that I hated and like, I mean, he hated me too. So, <laughs> um, and it was just this, this point where I was like, what is the point in any of this? Like, I just don't want to, I need to figure out like something. And it took a lot of time, like trying to pin it on things. And I think one of the easiest things to do is start saying, I'll get this job and then, or I'll, um, I just need to meet, like get in a relationship and then and, like, it's always this and then, and then, and then, and like, you just keep chasing it. Um, for me, uh, part of it was job related. Um, but it was all the things that actually came with it that I didn't think that's what it was going to be. Like, so I live in London now. Um, I moved here. I didn't know that many people. 
Um, I got this amazing job and uh, I work with, so uh, I work at Bain, Bain and Co do consulting. I work on super awesome projects. I work with really cool people. It's exactly what you were saying earlier, like being in this scenario where you are around people that are hyper intelligent, but also like really high emotional intelligence and you end up with these incredible friends that I've been here nine months and I may like feels like I've been here a lifetime um and then coming through that building up these friends like and I, I like to think about it in this this way I think there's like these four pillars in my life and the first one is my job the second one is like my hobbies third is like my friends and then fourth is family. And under that family pillar, like I also think about the relationships because I want to have a family at some point. And I think when I was going through this mental health journey, the start of it, I basically, I only had hobbies and friends. And then lockdown happened. And then friends got taken away and hobbies got taken away. And I was just sitting there in this like crumbling pillars of just nothing. Um, and I think it was... And I think where you stand is like, you always need like a couple of these pillars just holding you up and keeping the, like the roof on. And when they all go, like, that's when like you have like these quarter life crisis and you're just like, what the fuck am I doing? So then it takes time to build it back up. I think you need to like focus on one at a time, which is what I was able to do. Um, And then you get this point when you come out the other side and you've like, it's almost like you've rebuilt those pillars. You've reinforced them. Like those things are like reinforced concrete now like that. And you come out the other side and like, okay, now I can just keep moving forward. Like, and you've gone through this journey, whether it's a six month period of mental health um, or it's, or, or like struggling through that, or whether maybe it's a few years, but you come out this, this period where you just like, I'm not going to let stuff stop me now. And I'm just going to like keep building on this. And don't get me wrong. There's still times when I'm like, man, this is like tough, but it's like catching those moments and being able to like move forward on it. Um, so yeah, like I, do, I do feel like you come out the other side. Yeah. It's a cool point, you know, and to take your analogy even further, it's like, you know, have the skill to build pillars, right? So if one of your pillars gets knocked down again, you know that you can build it back up, right? And that's, I found that because, you know, when I had, I was like probably 11 or 12, like when I first had my own issues with my mental health. And as bad as it was back then, I'm, I actually am grateful that I had it because I've, I learned that you could feel really shit. You could go and get help. You could work on stuff. And then you would feel good again. And having that lesson put into your head at a really young age is amazing because it just gives you the power. It's like, I can change stuff. Like, okay, yeah, I'm. if I end up feeling shit again, that's not, that's bad. I hope I don't. But like, I have the tools or I know how to find the tools to go and get myself out of that situation. And I know that like, I can get that out of that situation because the really bad place is like when you're feeling terrible and you think that's it. You're like, how could I ever feel any better than this? Right? Like, I, I just can't, like, I can't imagine that scenario. Nothing can help me. How is talking to a therapist ever going to help me feel better? Like that's a waste of time. But then when you know that it can help you, it's, um, 
it it I I like that and it is resilience. And I think also I started that like I just started to get fascinated by the mind, right? Because I was like, oh my god, like you literally just can change like how you think about things or how your mind works. Um and I I wanted to I remember I had this idea of like, okay, well if I went from, you know, feeling shit to actually feeling okay again, can I keep going? Like can I get can I get mentally like incredibly strong, right? And so that's probably been more my path for like the last few years. I've been like, I want to keep investing in this thing because I want to be extremely resilient. Um, and I need to, my, I need to be careful not, you know, it's not a competition, right? <laughs> but, but it is, it is an interesting, um, an interesting thing and actually something that I'm kind of in many ways, I'm glad that I came through that journey because of what I got out in the far side of it. I, I totally agree. Like that, that phrase you said, like, well, just saying that I'm glad I went through it. It's a really weird place to be because when you're in that moment, you're like, this fucking sucks. And when you do, when you do come out the other side, you do think like, you know, I'm glad that happened to me. Um, and it is, is interesting. Like I was going, I was going to therapy at the time as well and talking to them and there was, there was stuff that really wasn't that working that much. And the thing that actually like was a big turnaround for me is I, I met up with one of my friends and I hadn't seen them in like nine months. And uh, we sat down and just started chatting and they were like, what's wrong? And I was like, oh, you know, like not enjoying my job at the minute, but like, you know, it's fine. Like these things that happen, I'll get better. And they're like, and they're like, no, no, like, what's really going on? And they like, and they forced me to just say, you know, I just fucking don't like anything at the minute. And we're a weird place. And I had to like, they forced me to admit it to myself. And, uh, and then I was like, but you know, like it'll get better and stuff. And then they're like, no, no, it's not gonna, like, you need to do this. Like you need to figure this out. Like, it's not just going to happen one day where you suddenly like have this epiphany moment. Like, Oh, I know what to, I need to do to get out of this. It's like, and it was a, it was a really tough love moment. That I need needed start doing something. doesn't matter what, just try something. And like, I was a little bit shocked. I didn't really know. Like they'd been through a th similar things, so I think they could see it. And uh, I went home. I went for a run. I actually took a picture of myself that day, and like in the mirror, and I was like, "Right, today's the day is going to like change." Um, and it's funny. Like I go back and I look at that picture now, and I honestly look like I'm like 38 in that photo. It's ridiculous. Like I look so bad. <laughs> and like I go back to it, and I like. I just think like, wow, they were so right. Like that tough love moment. And um, I think like, I guess like two things from that, like one is like, sometimes you got to have that honest conversation with yourself. And I think that's whether you're setting the goals forward or even if you're just like living uh, like through that moment, like things aren't very good right now. And you just got to be like completely honest and like think that through and like start thinking that like, just get really tactical about what you can do. Just do one thing, just do anything, just one thing. And then, as you said, like the power of momentum is insane. And then before you knew it, like I'd gone from being in that place, being like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing to then nine months later, nine months, maybe six months later, I got a job offer from Bain and & Co. And it was like this really weird, like 
blow around and it was like and it it, it mattered it, it, it changed a lot of things the, i guess the set um and then the second thing that, that whole story helped me understand is like when you've gone through it you can kind of see it on people and it makes you like so much more like emotionally aware and you can like you just know how to handle different situations whereas like before i was i was pretty bad at it like i just i, I don't know what like bit of me was switched off but i couldn't recognize a lot of those things um and it's like and then i think you have to take a lot of responsibility on that when you have gone through it you kind of know it a little bit you see it in others and you kind of have a bit of an obligation to give back and help others if you can at least that's what I, my philosophy has always been yeah yeah i think it's i think it's probably one of the most impactful things that you can do as well is like you know i think about how much you value that friend who was there for you and gave you that bit of tough love where, you know, and, and it's not always tough love. Sometimes you need soft love, right? <laughs> or some people need soft love. And so there's like different, different parts of it, but yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I a hundred percent agree. It's like, um, and, 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 and frankly, even selfishly, it makes you feel good. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> That's what I always say about helping other people. It's like, even if you don't do it because it's morally right, do it because, for selfish reasons, because you're going to feel pretty good if you do it. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. No, there's not. There's not. There's not. Like it's uh, like it's it's still a good reason to do it. People pick up on that energy. It's pretty. It's pretty. It's pretty good to be honest. Cameron, we've had uh, what I hope has been a good conversation. Is there anything other, anything else in your mind that you want to ask me? Because I know you're a you're a curious guy, and you usually have lots of questions. So. I mean, there's one other area, which is like, you're living in Australia and like, you're the other side of the planet from your family. Like, do you still want to stay out there? Like, For the next little while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Long term, I don't know. It's one of the toughest things because there's no, usually when I have a situation where I can't get the best of both worlds, I just like mash the worlds until I do, right? Um, whereas this situation where I live in Australia, my f- family, a lot of my friends are in Ireland, but the lifestyle that I like and where I want to be is in Australia. You can't solve that. Like there's no way to mash that into <laughs> into a perfect world. So right now I kind of take it, kind of take it year by year to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I know that like right now I can still be in Australia. Thankfully, like, you know, my family, my parents are all like still like healthy and, you know, don't need me around or anything like that. Like that might change, probably will change in the future. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have a partner. I don't have kids. So I have a lot of freedom in terms of making that decision. Um, and then I think the one compromise that I make is like, uh, just come home more often. Cause you can, you can make it a big deal, but like I'm home right now. I'm home for like 12 days, 24 hours. You're at home, right? 24 hours. You're back in Australia. It's a pain in the ass. You're going to be a bit jet lagged. Just do it, you know, and come home for the occasions. Like I came home like last year, I had like five weddings, five stags came home for all of them. Like just do it. Like, and that's, that's kind of the one compromise I kind of make. It's like, it's going to be a pain in the ass, but like it's worth it. 
um it's the only way to kind of try and that's how i'm trying to mash the worlds a little bit but um yeah i don't know things might change in the future you know what's the one thing you miss the most that's the dumbest thing that you miss the most like is there a good pint of guinness or there's nothing dumb about a good pint of guinness cameron (laughs) i miss i miss long evenings in the summer like right now like it's only gotten dark now it's like 10 past 10 it's may uh like even in australia the weather's good but it's dark at 8 p.m at the absolute latest i really miss long evenings um not to get too sentimental but i miss the sounds of the birds the birds in australia are really harsh if you've ever heard them there you probably used to hear them when we were on calls and like they're like he's really like screaming birds whereas like you go outside here like down in my parents house and it's like it's really nice birds that have this like beautiful song like you know your kind of stereotypical like walk in the woods kind of song so i miss that and i miss the guinness awesome well cameron thank you so much for doing this i really like i really appreciate it and you're actually you're a you're a very good host so if uh you you, you've now taken on the mantle of uh second in command of the two rows podcast and if ever i'm sick or out of action you're going to be called upon as host um, and to interview other people (laughs) and at some point i'm going to flip it and i'm going to get you on and we're going to properly go through your whole story as well i know we touched on it in our parts today but it's pretty interesting so i think people would enjoy hearing this anytime more than happy to come back it's been fun your time now